But what I'm going to be reading today is Jesus being brought before Pilate. Punches Pilate, some of you guys may recognize. I want to read the passage for you. It begins at verse 1. We'll go on down to about chapter uh, 15, verse 15, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get to work, taking a look at this particular passage and seeing what it has to say to us about Jesus before Pilate. So let's read, let's pray, let's get to work. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, they held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And then they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate. And then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man by the name of Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And as he answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And then he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have them release for them Barabbas instead. And then Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. God, we ask you right now that you would open our eyes, help us understand what this has to say to us. God, I pray that more importantly than anything, that you would just allow us to see, allow us to feel what this text wants us to feel. God, for us to hear a passage that just simply ends, and they took Jesus out to crucify him. God, we, we confess that we've lost in our culture just really the the sense of emotion that's stirred around the concept of crucifixion. God, I pray that you would just reinstill that in our hearts and our minds and that we would feel the sense of emotion that the reality of Jesus being crucified would instill in all of the readers. So God, let this text not just simply be more information in our minds. God, I pray that it would challenge us and move us and stir our hearts to even more profound love for you. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a lot to cover, and there's a lot of information that I think um, that we've got to kind of unpack to really try to understand. So I want to jump right in. I want to basically give you three things that we'll be trying to understand and look at that I think Mark wants us to see. The first of which deals with Jesus and Pilate. And so we'll take a look, first of all, at Jesus and politics. And what I mean by politics is not just simply politics in terms of a general sense, but we'll be taking a look at Pilate in specific because Pilate is the representative of Caesar. We'll unpack that more in a second. But first, we'll take a look at Jesus and politics, and more uh, idealistically, the idea of the political contrast between Jesus, the kingdom that he was bringing, and Caesar, uh, the kingdom of which Pilate represented. The second thing we'll take a look at is Jesus in Scripture. And what we'll look at here is that throughout the Gospel of Mark, Mark is always making these allusions or references to Old Testament passages. Almost as if to point out that Jesus' life is being lived according to a script or the scripture. That Jesus is doing things, acting out things, living according to certain things, not just arbitrarily, not just in terms of happenstance, but Jesus is doing things directly linked or connected to the scripture themselves. So we'll take a look at Jesus in terms of scriptural fulfillment. The third and final thing we'll take a look at is Jesus and you. In other words, maybe more appropriately, Jesus for you, because we'll finish with this really strange section of Pilate releasing a guilty man and killing an innocent man. And we'll take a look at how and why Mark and every other gospel account tells us how this happened and why they use the wording that they use to describe to us so that when we read it, I think there's an intentional way in which they're trying to bring us into the story so that we would see us in the story uh, in a lot of ways sort of embodied or depicted by 
uh, Barabbas himself. We'll get to that more in a second. So let's, first things first, let's jump in, take a look at Jesus and politics. And so what we see here is sort of a, a, a really not a typical type of a trial system going on here. What we saw last week was Jesus was brought before the religious leaders. So I want you to think of it this way. There are two powerful forces at work here. The one force is the religious system throughout Israel. Uh, they were powerful, but the power was limited. Okay? They had power over the religion. They had power over the temple. They had power over controlling people, and they did that. And we see that they did that, and ultimately, Jesus is being confronted by them. We saw that last week. But what they do now next is they bring Jesus before the greater power. His name is Pilate. Now, typically, when Rome conquered territories, what Rome would do is they would set up kings. They would set up uh, little sort of governments in each, of the, in each of those little domains, and those domains would be governed by um, a, a basic leader that was sort of uh, to be accountable and responsible to represent Caesar and all of Caesar's desires. So in other words, Pilate was that king. He was the representative of Caesar. Even though he wouldn't necessarily be described or describe himself as a king, he was kind of known as like a, a magistrate. And he represented sort of the interest of Rome, Caesar in particular. So in other words, Jesus standing before Pilate is actually Jesus standing for Caesar. He's standing before the interest of Caesar, which again, I wanted to put this in the context for you, that, that Rome was the greatest, most powerful empire in the world at the time. It's, it's as if Jesus is not only against the greatest religious institution of his time, but Jesus is also standing against the greatest political institution at the time. So Jesus interfaces and interacts with politicians, the political world. And this is what's happening here. So Pilate asks Jesus a very important question. And if you notice it again, take a look at verse 2. And then Pilate asks him a strategic question, because really this is all that Pilate cares about. He asks him very poignantly, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus' answer kind of shocks him, because really all that Pilate says, or all that Jesus responds, he says, you have said so. Now, we've got to unpack this a little bit because what's happening here, if we're not careful, we can read over this very quickly. And what, what Pilate really cares about, Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is a prophet. Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is a false prophet. What Pilate really cares about if, is Jesus a political leader. So the idea of a king, I'll break this down for you even further, a king is someone that has authority and power. The domain of which they exercise that authority or power over, as we call, a kingdom. It's a king's domain. That's what a kingdom is. Now, Caesar had a very large kingdom. It was basically governed by lots of different representatives. Pilate had also a kingdom, but it was not ex as extensive as uh, Caesar's. But the kingdom that Pilate had, which would have been the whole region of Judea, Pilate was responsible to make certain that the interests of Rome were represented in Judea. Now, you got to think of it this way. You guys are familiar with or maybe heard in history classes of the Pax Romana, Pax Romana. It's the idea of Roman peace. So the purpose of Rome, or one of the things that Rome tried to establish when they went into the world, is they tried to establish peace. But the way that Rome established peace was basically along these lines. You kill all your enemies. That's just kind of the way it works. So it's kind of an ironic type of a peace because on the one hand, it's a peace, but it's a peace that comes through bloodshed. And the symbol of peace, which we'll get to in a second here, is actually, or the symbol of that bloodshed comes through the form of the cross. Okay, we'll get to that more in a second. But what I want you to notice is basically two themes that arise in the passage. We'll take a look at these at the next slide. We'll show this. The first theme is that of Jesus being king. And we had only read verses 1 to 15, but if we were to go down to verse 32, six different times uh, Mark informs us. It's as if he wants us to really see clearly what's happening here. There's a theme in the story that Jesus is a king or the king. And that Jesus is actually being crucified because he is a king. That the, uh, that the symbol or the banner or the sign that's going to be placed over, the placard that's placed over Jesus' head will basically say something to the effect of, this is Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. So again, all in all, what I'm really trying to say is this, 
is this is a political type of a power play. Now, one of the things you'll discover sort of in this trial is Pilate will recognize that Jesus is not the typical type of political king that he's been used to. In other words, Jesus is not like the other revolutionaries that has been accustomed to kind of crop up every now and then without, throughout the Roman Empire. Jesus is different. He doesn't act like that. He doesn't do things like that. Where other uh, revolutionaries would come in and they would kill their enemies, all right? Jesus doesn't kill his enemies. Jesus helps his enemies. Jesus doesn't kill people. He actually raises them from the dead. Jesus doesn't starve out his enemies. Jesus actually feeds them with food. He's a radically different revolutionary. But the first thing that we see kind of in terms of a theme is the fact of a king. We see this. Now, again, I want to unpack this a little bit step further. The idea of a king is common throughout uh, Old Testament scripture. And God made this promise many, many years ago that he was going to provide or raise up a king. And this king would come and bring order. The order that this king would bring uh, is oftentimes described by Jews as being peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. That this king would also bring a promised peace. But the peace that this king would bring is not like Rome's peace. Rome's peace has a sword dangling over it. So in other words, if you disrupt or if you threaten or if you shake the boat of Rome's peace, you die. The peace that God brings is radically different. We'll see why in a moment. The second word or theme that kind of arises throughout these uh, 32 verses is cross or kind of its counterpart, crucify. And the idea that's basically being conveyed here is that the, the concept of crucifixion or cross is that Rome actually, think of, think of it this way, Rome built its empire on crosses. Rome actually built its empire on crosses. In other words, let me try to put it this way. Crucifixion was basically Rome's way of saying, we're in charge, and this is what happens if you should challenge or threaten or thwart Rome's intentions. All right, does that make sense? You guys get that? Crucifixion is what happens. Death happens. So uh, crucifixion is not just simply a means to kill somebody. I mean, there's a whole lot more better ways to kill somebody. Beheading goes pretty quick. Um, sword to the heart, again, probably pretty quick. Um, crucifixion takes a long time. And these guys were strategists in designing a type of, or a form of death that was not just intended to kill somebody, but was intended to make them suffer, and not just suffer, but also feel completely humiliated dehumanized. And what we'll read in the next few passages, not today, but next week and the following week, is that Jesus will actually be hung on a cross. Prior to being hung on a cross, he will have his clothes stripped from his body, and he will be hanging on the cross naked, completely shamed. It's basically Rome's way of saying, this is what we do to any would-be rival king, any would-be uh, leader that would come in and threaten or cancel or challenge Rome. And here's what's happening. This is what's taking place in the storyline. Now, I want to take this one step further and kind of talk a little bit about this concept of Jesus and politics one final step before I move on to the next thing. We are oftentimes very uncomfortable when we talk about Jesus and politics or Christianity and politics. And I think rightfully so, to be quite frank with you. Because what's happened over the, at least the past, I don't know, maybe 20 years, is that there have been Christians that have basically hijacked a so-called form of political system and have basically tried to kind of bring this idea of saying Christianity and republicanism go hand in hand. And at the same time, there have been a lot of uh, idiosyncrasies and all sorts of things that have kind of been distasteful in that. And it's kind of caused people to sort of revolt against that. So here's the point. When I talk about Jesus and politics, i got to use my terms very carefully. So I want to give you a definition here. Politics, uh, the etymology of politics, I just took this from the internet. You know, every, you can believe everything on the internet. Um, here's what it says in the etymological dictionary. It says this, that this was the science of good sense applied to public affairs. At least that's what it should be, right? Politics is applying good sense, good thinking, good process 
to public affairs. Um, here's what the dictionary actually says. Activities associated with governance of a country or an area or maybe scratch out country or area and fill that in with the word kingdom, domain. Now let me ask you a question. Does what Jesus did on the cross and ultimately in terms of a life that's being lived by followers that truly follow Jesus, does what Jesus say and what he taught and what he did, does it have an effect upon your interaction with others? Read, parenthetically, the public. The answer is absolutely. Absolutely it does. If you understand what Jesus has to say, it does affect how you treat your neighbor. It does affect how you deal with your enemies. It does affect who you will forgive and who you won't forgive and what happens if you choose not to forgive. It radically affects your relationship on a social level. It affects who you have dinner with. It affects who you're willing to spend time with, hang out with, have meal with, give money to. It affects all of those things. Now, in other words, when I talk about Jesus and politics, in a sense, Jesus is a political leader. But this is where you got to define terms very carefully. As a political leader, the political kingdom that Jesus was initiating is radically incompatible and disjointed and disconnected then from the kingdom of Rome. And even more so, more broadly, the kingdom of this entire world. This is one of the reasons why I believe it's in the book of John. Jesus is confronted by Pilate, and it's not recorded for us in Mark. And Pilate basically says to Jesus, do you know that I have, I have the power to give you life, meaning I can release you right now, or I have the power to kill you, meaning the cross, to crucify you? And what Jesus then says, you have no power unless the Father gave it to you. In other words, and then Jesus goes on to say, don't you know that my kingdom is not of this world? Now Christians, in a lot of ways, some historically have basically looked at this and said, well, what Jesus is talking about is that his kingdom, his kingdom, his domain, isn't here, it's somewhere out there, somewhere way out there, and one of these days we'll go way out there and we'll find it or discover it. That's really not what Jesus is saying. Because if you understand what the Bible teaches is that the Bible says that God inhabits the whole earth. God is in the process of not destroying the earth, but restoring the earth. This is what's happening. In other words, the idea is that one of these days, Jesus will come back and restore that which is broken and dysfunctional within this earth by beginning with you and I, which is broken and dysfunctional in us. We call it sinful. Jesus is in the process of doing this. So here's the point that I would make. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, what he's clearly saying is that my kingdom and the kingdom of this world, the way the kingdoms in this world operate, totally incompatible. They're totally different. They don't work simultaneously. They don't work side by side. They have an entirely different ethic. They have an entirely different motivational process. They're not the same thing. Let me, let me break this down one step further. In this world, the way, for example, our government works, the power that our government basically exercises over us to say, you know, be nice to people and don't kill them. And that and maybe some of us don't spend a lot of time really thinking about this, but we know, at least instinctively, if you violate that and go out and you kill somebody, you'll do jail time, you might be, you know, killed. In some ways, that is the power of the sword, saying, if you do this, this is what will happen to you. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, if you understand what I've done for you, I don't want you to kill people, I want you to love people. Other than stealing from your neighbor, why don't you throw them a feast and bless them? Rather than doing things in terms of holding a grudge over somebody and trying to navigate your life throughout, you know, those awkward moments where you run into them at the grocery store and you know that things aren't right between you and them and you got a grudge against them, Jesus says, learn to forgive them. Jesus' kingdom has a radically social dimension that changes. What I mean, social, is changes society. I begin with us, changes the way that we act, the way that we treat other people on a social level with other people. We love rather than hate. We forgive rather than hold grudges. Rather than taking lives, we want to help give lives. And oftentimes the way that if we live this out properly, the way that life is given is oftentimes it may come in the form of us 
sacrificially laying our lives down so that other people might have it. This is the picture that Jesus is basically saying. This is one of the reasons why when basically Jesus answers him in this particular statement, when Pilate asks him, are you a king? Jesus says, you say it is so. In some ways, this is a very ambiguous response from Jesus. And what Jesus is, is basically saying, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a king the way that you understand kings. It's, it's intentionally ambiguous. Because if Jesus were to say, yes, I'm a king, by your definition, then Jesus would be slaughtered right there. Because Caesars, if there's one thing that Caesars don't like more than anything else, are rival kings. And you might be like, that's not fair. Look, the reality is, you and I are the same way. Look, think about it this way. Every one of us have the same problem. We live in this life as if you and I are our own little kings. We have our own little kingdoms. Those, those little areas around our lives that we govern. We keep them orderly. We protect them. And when they get disorganized, when something comes in and interrupts or disrupts our peace, what do we do? We do everything in our might to bring order and peace back. Even if we have to exercise might to do so. Meaning, if someone comes into my domain personally and they interrupt it, I might even use force. I might even raise my voice. We're doing the same thing that Caesar would have done, that Pilate would have done, but only on a smaller scale. But Jesus is saying that yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a king like a king that you've ever seen. I don't run my kingdom the way that Caesar runs his kingdom. My kingdom is not advanced the way that your kingdom advances. What motivates my people is not the sword. It's not the threat of death. It's not the threat of crucifixion. It's something greater, something more powerful to motivate his people. Let's take a look at it in a second. A couple things to help us shape and to understand the idea of the cross is that it was, like I said, the power of Rome over all the people. It was the ultimate way by which Rome was able to say, we have ultimate control over everything you do. And if you violate it, we'll step in and we'll crush you. This is what Rome was basically saying. The second thing we'll take a look at very quickly is Jesus and Scripture. Jesus and Scripture. And what we see here in the passage is really Jesus and Scripture all throughout are basically coalescing into one particular point, meaning Jesus is the king. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 starts out, says, you know, this is the story of the life of Jesus the Christ. The word Christ, I've said this before, is basically the Greek way of describing king. The Hebrew form of it is Mashiach, but it's all the same. That's why I say in the English, when you think of the word king, um, you're also just thinking in terms of the biblical sense of Christ or Messiah, Mashiach. It's all the same idea. It's a political figure, not necessarily building a political kingdom. This is where it gets a little bit sticky sometimes because people think, um, you know, well, are we part of this political kingdom that's going to go and take over the world? See, people dreadfully fear this idea of theocracy because we've seen it exercised throughout points of history, right? Throughout you know, past of Christianity that has kind of done some hideous things. And oftentimes I like to ask the question, when that's happened, when theocracy has prevailed and blood has been shed, I oftentimes like to ask the question, what God are they representing? Because that's certainly not the God of the Bible. In other words, the idea is that there's always this proneness to degeneration. And this is what we've happened, this is what's happened throughout the history of the church, is that not a theocracy is moving forward, not God moving forward, but their own intentions, their own little kingdoms get fused with Christianity. If I can put it this way, it's as if carnal, bad, immoral attitudes sort of get baptized in Christian concepts. Does that make sense? But it's not Christian. Don't make any mistakes about thinking that it's Christian because it's not Christian. But here's the point, because if we really understand the gospel, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing and not only do we absorb it into our lives and it affect us and change us, then we will look like, our lives will look something like Jesus' life, which we see put on display here in front of Pilate. So the second thing we see is Jesus in Scripture. I'm going to go through these things really quickly. There's two things that we notice. 
The first of which is that we see that Jesus, before Pilate, is silent. So we see the silence of Jesus or that Jesus is silent. Now, Pilate, first of all, asked Jesus the question. Jesus answered. He says, I am as you say. But then secondly, Pilate asks actually a series of four questions. Two of those questions are actually poised directly at Jesus. The second question that basically arises in the text is in verses 3 to 5, where the chief priests begin to accuse Jesus. Now, again, remember, like I said earlier, Pilate doesn't really care whether or not Jesus is a false prophet. That's not a big deal to Pilate. But he does care if Jesus is a revolutionary that's going to threaten Caesar's peace. That's what he really cares about. Or what he cares about is if this little trial escalates into something bigger that actually might look like some form or shape of a riot. And this is where it's heading. This is why kind of I think Pilate stresses a little bit and basically makes a decision that's a horrible decision. We'll see in the end. But here's my point is that we see that nonetheless, while Jesus is basically being accused by the religious leaders, Pilate asked him, you know, don't you have anything to say for yourself? Your kingdom's being attacked. Your claims are being attacked. Your domain is being attacked. Don't you have anything to say? Jesus opens on his mouth, it says. doesn't say anything. And then it just ends with this little section where it says, Pilate's astonished. Why is he astonished? Because, look, Pilate knows that if somebody questions your authority or if someone questions you or pushes back on you or fights you or accuses you of something, what's our natural reaction? It's to fight back, right? We push back. We fight back. We figure out ways to sort of attack or counterattack. We figure out ways to kind of position ourselves, posture ourselves strategically, uh, strike back. We look for ways to jostle, to take down if somebody's going to attack us. And here's Jesus, totally silent. And Pilate's like tripping out. Why? Because Pilate's never seen this. Like I said, Pilate's accustomed to all sorts of counter-kingdom movements arising up. But you know, at the end of the day, what Pilate, I think, would notice? That all of them are just part of the same thing. They're all part of the same corruption. They're all just power plays. It's just, it's just all a new rearrangement of powerful people and new positions and new places, flexing new muscles, forcing new means and ways upon the people, creating more forms of fear. But here's Jesus not doing anything, not defending himself. And it says he's shocked by this. In reality, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, that says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before his shears is silent, so he opened out his mouth. And what Isaiah prophesied is that there would one day come a king, a solution, bringing a kingdom, unlike any other kingdom. In other words, the rules of this kingdom don't look like, don't act like, don't resemble, don't reflect the principles and the actions of this world. They don't reflect the principles and actions of my life, I'll be honest with you on that. I mean, that's my, that's my number one downfall, is I, when, when my kingdom, my ideas, my thoughts are crossed, I have a tendency to counter-strike, to fight, to retaliate. It's not good. It's a horrible part of me. I wish it would change. Pray that God changes it. Pray that God changes it for my wife's sake. And the reality is, is that the, the point that I would make is that this is who we are. I mean, all of us, we have these tendencies. And Pilate's astonished at this reality. And so what happens here is that all of this is in fulfillment of the scripture because what Mark is saying, what Isaiah has been saying for several hundred years is that there will become a king. And this king will set up a domain, a kingdom that will not be like any other king. It's not going to be like another rearrangement of power players. Putting the strong on top, dominating, oppressing the weak. Instead, it will be the strong descend to the bottom in order to take the weak who are broken and raise them to the top. This is exactly what's happening, and we see glimpses of this taking place where Jesus, rather than retaliating, rather than fighting, rather than pushing back, silent. And Isaiah says it's like a lamb going to a slaughter, but not saying anything. This is the picture that he says. 
So we see Jesus is silent. The second thing we see that is Jesus is spotless. This is amazing to me because in the storyline, Pilate knows that Jesus is not like a typical revolutionary. Now, typical revolutionaries back in uh, Pilate's day, and there were plenty of them. It's not like, you know, oh, we've never seen a revolutionary before. It's like it happened all the time. In fact, in governments or in situations or nations where the oppression is the heaviest, you see more revolts oftentimes that have the tendency to kind of come up, and they oftentimes do the same thing. They have this tendency to rob from the rich or the privileged in order to give to the poor and underprivileged. And this would have been the type of uh, movement that Pilate would have been familiar with and would have been accustomed to having to crush. But with Jesus, Jesus isn't going out and crushing you know, the powerful, instead, he's, he's raising up the weak. He's not killing people. He's raising them from the dead. He's not stealing food. He's creating food for 4,000, for 5,000 people. He's not creating storms and causing chaos. He's calming storms. Jesus is doing something so different, and Pilate recognizes there's a sense of innocence about Jesus. He's not like a typical revolutionary. You can't categorize him. He's not like a religious right extremist. He's not like a liberal left. He's, he doesn't belong to them. He doesn't belong to them. He's nothing like he's ever seen before. He's totally spotless, and he's figuring out ways to somehow release Jesus, but he can't. But here, again, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. Like I said, Jesus is living out his life according to passages or scripture. And this idea actually gets picked up. Peter points it out. Take a look at the next slide. Peter talks about this. Peter was one of Jesus' apostles. He says this, you were ransomed from your futile ways, not with perishable things as silver or gold. Now think about it this way. Silver and gold just have as much value back then as they do today. So in other words, if I were to say, you know, you down in the front have all the silver and gold, all right, I didn't mean to pick you out, but you have all the silver and gold. People would have this propensity to be like, oh, I might go become friends with that guy now. You know, maybe he'll like take me out to lunch or, you know, you'll have all these new friends come around you because silver and gold have the power to influence people, right? But what Peter's saying is that we weren't purchased by perishable things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. And Peter, by writing this and stating this, is basically taking our minds back to the book of Exodus, where in the book of Exodus, God delivered his people from the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And the way that he did this was by taking a spotless lamb, sacrificing a spotless lamb, putting blood over the doorpost, and everybody that was in the door, uh, in the house of that uh, doorpost that had the blood splashed on it, they would have been rescued. The angel of death would have flown over their house, and that house would have been rescued. Anybody within the house trusting in that spotted, that precious, uh, the blood of that uh, spotless lamb would have been rescued. So in other words, the idea that I think is basically being conveyed here is that even though Pilate knows that Jesus has done no wrong, he hasn't incited a riot, he hasn't started a revolt, yet the reality is, and according to the storyline of Mark, is that if Jesus is the Messiah, and if one of the unbelievable benefits of the Messiah is that he is going to remake or recreate or build a new humanity, you and I, that are spotless, that are forgiven. The word forgiven basically means there's nothing else charged to your account. That, by definition, spotless. And if what Jesus is doing is creating a new humanity that is spotless, the only way that he can create this new humanity that's spotless is if he himself becomes soiled with their stain. And this is exactly what we see happening here. Now I'm going to pause real quick and just point out, this, this is not that difficult to understand in a very natural sense. Let me give you an example. If you knew somebody, for instance, that was in some major financial crisis, they didn't have money to pay their bills. They were suffering. They were struggling. Maybe it was a result of their own, you know, uh, 
not ability, not ability to spend money or to manage money. But if you saw this person, you're like, you know what? I have compassion on this person. I want to help them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out a game plan. And let's say your game plan to help this person who's in serious financial crisis is to come to them and say, look, for the next three months, I'm going to pay, you know, $3,000 of your bills. I'll take a loan out on my house. I'll do something. I'll figure out a way to get money to help you for the next three months, get back on your feet. On top of that, we'll spend some time. I'll counsel you. I'll coach you. I'll spend some time to help you organize your money and to kind of uh, reorder things in your life, to get some bills paid off, to do what I can. I will spend some time. I will help you. I will give money. What you're actually doing is you're basically saying the way that you're going to help that person get back to a place where they're not spotted anymore by debt is you're taking debt on yourself. You're sacrificing. You're taking upon yourself debt so that they who have debt can go free. This is the picture of the gospel. We know that. If you're ever going to help anybody, I mean, really, truly help someone. I'm not saying just give five bucks to a homeless person and think, I did my duty for the day. I'm talking really, truly help somebody. You know it's painful. You're going to get soiled. You will become spotted you will pay prices. You will feel like you're bleeding. You will feel like you're dying because you are. But the theme, the storyline, the narrative is that you're doing that because you are taking upon yourself their stain so that they who bear that stain can go free. This is the story of the gospel. This is why Jesus had to be spotless. And if Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do, which is to create a new humanity, people that are spotless, without sin, that are cleansed and purified and washed. He himself must get his hands soiled, his body dirtied, and this is what we see he did. On the cross, we're told he bore our sin. This is what's absolutely amazing. In the book of Revelation, we're told that there comes a day when the prophet, or that, you know, the apostle John says he sees this massive army of people dressed in white robes. And you got a problem with white robes and just at least deal with the imagery of it. The imagery is that white robes symbolize peace, purity, and beauty, which is the opposite of what maybe some of you feel right now. Defiled, dirty, broken. I was talking to some of this past week, and honestly, this is my hardest job as a pastor is having to talk with people who are soiled by sin. The person talking to me this past week just says, I, I, I started crying. He was crying. He's just like, I feel so soiled, so stained, so filthy because of my choices, my actions, my sin that I've done in my past. The most unbelievable story I get to share with them is that Jesus has taken your soilness, your stain, your spot, so that you who feel this defilement can be given a sense of purity and freedom. And so in this passage, we see that all of this was in fulfillment of the scripture, that Jesus not only was silent, but also ultimately spotless. And this finishes with the storyline here, that really what does all of it has, have to do for you and I? And this kind of leads to sort of this final conclusion of the story, because it gets really unique here. I mean, we're told of... Pilate, what looks like total injustice. Like, you know, he comes on the scene, he's like, look, I got this uh, tradition, this historical tradition every year, you know, I release a prisoner to you guys. We don't know anything about that. You know, I think Josephus speaks a little bit about that. He was a, uh, an early church historian, he wasn't a Christian, but he talks about this. So we don't really know too much about this other than the fact that it was sort of this, uh, this tradition that Pilate had that, look, you guys have a prisoner, we'll set the prisoner free. Maybe it was sort of symbolic of what happened to the people of Israel on um, Passover you know, several thousand years earlier. I don't know. But the point of the matter is, is Pilate uses this as an opportunity to sort of capitalize on the moment because Pilate knows he's got a problem. He knows that Jesus is innocent. Now again, like I said, Pilate is not so much concerned about justice as much as he is concerned about keeping the peace. That's the main issue. And if Pilate puts to death an innocent man, and there's enough people who rally around the death of an innocent man to the point where they end up going to Caesar and create a riot as a result of it, 
uh, Pilate's not just simply out of job. He may be out of head. Not ahead, but off ahead. All right? That's the idea. He's concerned about his life. So he's trying to figure out a way to somehow release Jesus if he's truly innocent, but also preserve his own neck. So he basically comes to the crowd and he says, look, there's, there's a guy by the name of Barabbas. His name literally means Bar Abba, meaning uh, the son of the father. Interesting. Jesus' name is the son of the father. This other guy, another revolutionary. And what we're told about him is that he too, whoever this guy was, Barabbas, was a revolutionary, but a revolutionary of the standard type committed murder. And when I say the standard type, I mean just like you and I. I mean, some of you might be like, I never murdered anybody. Have you ever liked talking bad about somebody? Talking down to somebody? Why do you do that? Why do we do that? I'll tell you why we do that. Because you see yourself as a king and your kingdom was challenged. Now you might not whip out a sword and kill somebody because you know the ramifications of that are something that it's not worth it to you slaughtering someone to spend the rest of your days in jail. So we look for alternatives. We use our tongue as a sword. We yell at people. We exercise our tempers. All of those are attempts to hold our ground. We're all little Barabbases. In other words, and Pilate says, I can release the Barabbas, he's an insurrectionist, and a murderer, or I can release the Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the crowd shouts, crucify him. Twice they shout, crucify him. And in their heart, they were already made up. They wanted Jesus to die. But what Mark is telling us and weaving into the storyline is that for Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a murderer, to go free, Jesus had to die. And this isn't just some sort of strange coalescing of bad circumstances. This is all ordained by God. This is what God intended I asked the question last week, why, why would Jesus, if he is a king, if he really is a king, why would he allow himself to stand in front of two courtrooms now and completely be charged and accused and attacked and beaten? Last week we saw they put a bag over his head and punched him in the face. So last week, you know, if you get hit in the face and you're expecting it, you know how to react accordingly to that. If you have a bag over your face and you get clocked, you don't know how to react to that. You take the full weight of that blow. That's what happened with Jesus. If Jesus is indeed the king of kings, the lord of all lords, why would he subject himself to this? All right, that might be a hard thing for us to even understand. And I was kind of thinking about this last night. I sat down, I watched, I confessed with my family, Downton Abbey. Any Downton Abbey fans here? All right, like a couple of you women. Oh, that's cool. Um, all right, there, there's a leader of the you know, family. His name's Lord Grantham. All right, can you imagine this guy who has all the power over Downton Abbey? He's like the main dude, all authority, all honor, all power is given him over his domain, Downton Abbey. If he were to subject himself to scrutiny and attack and destruction by, by his entire service staff, that just seems silly. Why would God subject himself to it? And the answer is, he was setting the stage so that he would take the place of a Barabbas. Remember, he's a king. The way that Caesar worked to establish his kingdom, to protect his peace, to establish his peace, was that Caesar's kingdom went out by putting to death every rival king's and every rival, every adversary. That's the way Caesar's peace works. And if you're honest with yourself, that's how your peace works. In other words, you and I have the same kingdom ethic as a despot, if you're honest with yourself. Jesus' kingdom is totally different than Caesar's because the emperor, in Jesus' case, establishes his peace by taking the death that's deserved by rival kings. In their place, the judgment they had coming to them upon himself, takes the stain that they have mounted in their own lives upon himself. He's soiled so that they can become spotless. 
He's crushed so that they, rather than being crushed, can go free. He's judged so that you and I, who stand rightly judged, can have our debt penalty waived from us. Our sin canceled out, washed white as snow. That's why Jesus stood in front of these court systems. That's why the king left his throne and subjected himself to this. What you need to understand is a king that operates and lives and acts like this is a king that you can trust and you can give him everything in your life. He won't crush you because he was crushed for you. This is the type of king. And let me add one final thing. I'm done. The king that establishes kingdom like this and people that are brought into this new humanity, this new kingdom, who've been brought into this new humanity, this new kingdom, by way of its leader laying his life down, who once was strong and powerful, made himself weak so that people who are weak can become strong. If you believe that, and guess how you live your life? Socially. The same way. You can live your life. You're free. Where the money that you have in your life, you can actually freely give it away. Whereas according to the kingdom of this world, where money equals status, money equals power, money equals ability and might, good looks equals, you know, advancement in your career. But in the kingdom of God, money becomes a means to bless other people. The energy and the strength and the might that you have becomes a means by which to leverage that from other people that are broken and marginalized and hurting, to love them, to help them. Because this is how God established his kingdom in your life. And if you're honest and you believe this and you see this and you know the, the length to which Jesus went to set you free, to liberate you, to the degree that you see that, you'll be free. Not just simply free to one day go to heaven when you die, but free now to live in this life currently setting other people free from the debts that you've held over their head. It's called forgiveness, by the way. Loving those, not just your buddies, but even your enemies. Even those that are totally different than you. Because this is how Jesus treated you. This becomes the new ethic of this new kingdom, this new humanity, this new life. And it all took place because we have a king that allowed himself to be accused, to take upon himself our spot, our stain, so that we who bear continual stain, Spots and stains can go free. I want to finish, and we're going to close by some songs and singing and praying and partaking of communion. I'm going to have the team come on up. And what I want to do right now is I just want to encourage you guys as we finish to really consider what Jesus has done for you. Because here's the most amazing thing, if I can summarize it this way. What we have in Jesus, unlike any other religion, is that almost every other religion comes along and basically says, here's our unique teacher. They have unique abilities, unique insight. Follow the message that they share. And to the degree that you follow the message that they share and they live and they communicate, then you'll be, to some degree, various shades, degrees, liberated somehow. At least that's the hope of the promise. But what we have with Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity does not start with God coming and saying, I have some great advice for you to follow. What we have is Christianity is we have a God coming and doing something for us doing something for us, not just telling us what to do, not just good advice, but doing something for us that's so profound that if all of us are like Barabbas's, and if God is the ultimate universal king over all things, and he is, then our little attempts to establish our little care, you know, kingdoms are nothing more than a cheap parody and we stand under the judgment of God. And yet, if we understand the message of the cross is that this God came and took upon himself the judgment that we deserved and thereby set us free. To the degree that you see that, he's not just this powerhouse that exercises and flexes his might, but that he's a loving, caring father who truly reaches out to draw you in. That changes your heart. You're not living to prove to anybody else how great you are anymore. You don't need to go out and try to exercise your might and your power and 
demonstrate how wonderful you are to everybody because you've got to earn a name for yourself. You're free from that. You're totally free from that because in Christ, if the message of the gospel is true, you've been liberated. The only one true opinion in the entire cosmos that matters looks at you and says, you're my son. You're my daughter. This is absolutely good news because of what Jesus did for you. It's amazing. It's liberating. It sets you free. So that people in your life on a social level, they're not stones by which you have to step across to, in order to prop yourself up to become somebody. In Christ, you are already somebody. And people become people now you get to show and love and shower grace upon just like he showered upon you. This is the beauty of what God invites us into. I want to invite you into that. We're going to sing. We'll have some people available over here by the cross to pray for you. I'm just telling you, some of you are going through stuff right now maybe you need to deal with. Maybe issues of like kingdom. You're having a hard time trying to figure out how these things sort of coalesce and work together. We're going to pray for you. We have people that want to pray for you. Grab someone and have them pray for you. They'll be over by the cross. We have some rugs in the front. You just want to sit down before the Lord. Get on your knees and just worship Him as a king. We have a community in the back to partake and to celebrate. I'm going to pray. Let's sing. Let's all stand to celebrate together what God has done for us, okay? Because at the end of the day, this is really exceptionally good news. What we have to share, what we have to talk about is really good news. It means that we have a king that has invited us in, that hasn't canceled us out, that hasn't excluded us, but in unbelievable act of grace, has invited us at the exclusion of his son. He was excluded so that you and I who deserve to be excluded can be invited in and given a place of unbelievable honor at his table as honored guests. Not just honored guests, but as sons and daughters. Because he adopts us as such. And then heirs. He gives us everything we don't deserve. God, thank you for the cross. We pray right now that you would just let that message melt our hearts, remove cynicism, open our eyes, stir affections. God, to stir up a sense, a deep sense of celebration of what Jesus has done for us. To help us to sing, because joyful people sing.